0: Seen my son Matt or his wife, particularly Amanda, since she was in that horrific car accident. So uh, she had healed up from her broken wrist and various other things. And I think I told you some weeks ago that as soon as she was able, they were going to move her up to a therapy place in Denver, which is rated number one or number two in the nation for working with people with her type of injury. It wasn't brain injury, it was brain stem. Her mind works fine, but uh, everything else is paralyzed except her eyes, her eyelids. Uh, But uh, they've made some progress now. She can actually, when I was there, she could pick her legs up and down, uh, sitting in a wheelchair, and move her head up some, and she'd be able to lift her hands to some degree, so she's getting a little better, and one vocal cord's trying to start working. So she, they're hoping they can have her talking and eating pretty soon. She still can't eat, but she can take a small ice cube and let it melt and, and actually swallow a little water. So things are improving slowly, and I I think in this new uh, therapy center, they're experts, and they should be able to help her a lot. I did tell her that... Uh, they may help her a lot, and she may gain back a lot, but I said, I really think God's going to have to heal you if you're going to get 100% recovered from this. And she says, I do believe God will heal me. She, she spells it out on a screen in front of her with her eyes. It's an amazing tool. But uh, it was my only chance to see her, because once she went to this place where she is now, uh, no visitors. Uh, Just her husband and her mother could come and stay with her, but no one else, uh, because of COVID-19. Interesting. Well, during the feast, we went through a series I called, How Do We Get From Here to There?, and basically went through. Uh, the things that God is going to require of his end-time church in building both a spiritual and a physical temple. And we went through some of the temple building and showed the pattern that was there and then the pattern that will continue with Ezekiel's temple, it appears, uh, here at the end. And that's all very, very important, but I want to get to, I thought about this a little bit, what is the most important thing that we could be thinking about and considering and maybe talking about at this point? Here we are, as of today, ten days from an election uh, which could cause extreme chaos, violence in the land, uh, depending on which way it goes and perhaps any direction it goes. We may have riots and civil war. Uh, the judgment of God, I believe, has already been passed on this nation, and now the cursings are coming, and they're going to come in waves, one after another, and I don't think there's going to be any let up this time. We are in it. Uh, the timing seems right, from everything I see in Scripture, and here we are. So, just occurred to me, if there's anything you still need to prepare yourself, for not you being able to go to the stores, you may only have about ten days left to get it done. Because we may have total chaos. It may take, it may start immediately, or it might take a month, or whatever. I don't know. It maybe depends on who they declare the winner, and then the repercussions from that, because I don't think either side is going to relinquish, and uh, it's going to lead to trouble. And that trouble will probably just get worse and worse and worse. And ironically, the CDC just announced that there have only been nine, uh, one, no, 9,152 deaths from COVID in this nation. It was reported over 150,000. But now they've admitted that it's only 9,000. And we've had all this disruption and a nation behind masks for basically nothing. Except they've been destroying the economy. And it is not going to be long, I don't believe, until your cash will do you no good. Gold may not do you any more good. Because they are talking very seriously about a digital currency, And they will deposit money in everybody's universal bank account or digital currency wallet every month. So you'll have whatever the government decides that they're to send everybody. And that's what you'll have to live on. If you don't take the vaccination, you won't get the chip and you won't be able to buy and sell just like the book of Revelation tells us will happen. And it is being developed, I suspect already is developed, and will be introduced at an opportune time when people are desperate. And they may get desperate here in the next month or two or three or four. So this thing is going to be rolled out before very long. And if you don't take their chip, you won't buy and sell. Period. God told us that a long time ago. Now we're facing it. And we better have our minds made up what we're going to do. They better be made up ahead of time. When people get hungry, they get desperate. God has promised to take care of us, but I don't know how long a gap there will be between, uh, let's say, in the plagues of Egypt... (laughs) Everybody got them for a while, and then God made a separation. And that's the pattern. And it could happen that way again this time, where God lets us seemingly go along with what's happening before he makes a difference, because it can be a test, a trial of faith, uh, all these things uh, involved. So I think we need to be as well prepared as we can and two weeks' worth of food uh, is a joke. Sorry, that's a joke. Because it might be quite a bit longer than that. It could extend for months. Months. You ready for that? As it very well could be. If you don't have several months' worth, six months minimum, I'd say, you better be busy the next ten days. This is getting serious, and what this election will set off, nobody knows, but there are an awful lot of suspicions what it's going to set off, and I have some of those suspicions myself. So, we're down to the nitty-gritty now, people. So, what do we need to be thinking about? Not just food, but on a spiritual level, what would God have us most involved with right now, and what should be the thing that I'm bringing out to you. Let's go to the book of Matthew. In chapter 1, we have the generations from uh, Abraham down through, or David down through Abraham (laughs) down through David and the Isaac and Jacob, and so on, until it came down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And that's 42 generations from Abraham down till Christ Jesus was born. Now, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was thinking of putting her away because he didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And his uh, espoused wife was pregnant. and It wasn't on him. So what does he do? He was going to quietly put her away and try to protect her from public ridicule. Verse 20, But while he thought on these things, he was pondering it. What should I do? I was going to marry her, and now she's pregnant and I don't want to do this, what should I do? Behold, the angel of the Eternal appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take him to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bring up, bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, literally in the Greek, that means Savior uh it can be in the hebrew called yeshua or joshua uh it can be called jesus in spanish it can be called a lot of things and i think god does allow for translation uh it's not that i mean people get all spooked about this and think that it has to be just certain consonants from hebrew and all that but uh, i'll just give you my experience okay I have for many, many years, for decades, anointed people in the name of Jesus and seen them healed. So I know Jesus works, okay? That's been my experience, and some of you had children healed and yourselves healed using that name. So God has been honoring it. And then you get those that, oh, if you got to say it just right if you don't, yeah, 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 get it you know, then it doesn't count. Yes, it does. It's the being that counts. And whatever language you use, uh, and it's translated that way, is not a problem. It's just not. But Savior was his name. Or God is salvation uh, in the Hebrew could be the translation of that. For he shall save his people from their sins. So that shows you salvation, saving them from their sins, is what his name is. He was named Savior. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, now this is from Isaiah 7 which we've gone over many times, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and, you shall, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now there's some things here I want to point out about what we're reading. And that is that Joseph was perplexed by what was going on, okay? He had no clue. And this would not have been Jesus who sent an angel. This would have had to have been the Father, because Jesus was in the womb of his mother to be born. So it was the Father who sent an angel. Notice that the Father himself did not appear in the dream. He did not bring the dream, because the Father has held back from that all through history. So he sent an angel to Joseph <coughs> to give him this dream. In the Old Testament, uh, Jesus was the Christ, not yet, but he was uh, the one whom God created everything through. Colossians makes that very clear. Without him was nothing made. So the father has always sat back and let his son, he who became his son, do the work. So he was the God of the Old Testament who addressed Abraham, who addressed Moses, who addressed various ones. He was the uh, creator from the beginning and oversaw the whole thing. The Melchizedek of the Old Testament, the high priest of the Old Testament. But here he was in Mary's womb, so the father sent an angel to tell Joseph that, don't worry about this, it's for me. Now it is interesting that we'll see as we go forward here, that several people had dreams. So that's the pattern. Uh, several people in the Old Testament had dreams. Daniel uh, had dreams, and so on. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did, but then Daniel did as well to explain Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. So God has done that, and he did it at the beginning of the New Testament. So here we are at the end time, and the same kind of thing is going to be done because that is the pattern. And God will show whom he wants to show what he wants someone to know. And if they don't get some message from him, they'd better be careful about being presumptuous and thinking they are something that God has not appointed them to. Because you can't take it unto yourself, Paul made that very clear in the book of Hebrews. So anyway, this was something special, and God sent a an angel to let Joseph know. Now let's focus for a moment here on this thing of uh, in verse twenty three from Isaiah seven. He made it very clear in verse twenty one that at that time, when he was born, his name was to be Jesus. And if you go down to the last verse here in 25, that's what Joseph called him when he was born Savior or Jesus. So that's what he was to be called during his ministry and by the New Testament church. That was, and we have used it up until just recently because that's what God said to do. Now, at the end time, because Isaiah is an end time prophecy, it says, He'll bring forth and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So it's the same being. This is Jesus the Christ who becomes, comes to be called by Emmanuel. So he was the one forecast to be born to the church. Now, we know from my, from Zechariah 2 and other places that he is going to come and dwell with the church at the end time. I will come and dwell with you, he says, and be a wall of fire around you. So he gets an upgrade in that sense to a more intimate relationship, not just God is salvation or Savior, but God with us, the Savior. He's already delineated His Savior, but now he will be with us. And that's different than being up in heaven with his Father on the throne and being here. Because he's coming to be with us. As I've said, it does not say whether he'll be visible. It doesn't say... uh how much he will communicate with us, just that he'll be there and be with us. An example from the Old Testament that I use from Deuteronomy is when he told them, uh, when they were camping out, millions of them, you carry a shovel with you and you go bury uh, your waste. He says, I may come walking through the camp and I don't want to step in it. So he made it clear that he comes and goes. As he pleases, he comes and goes. So he's going to come and he's going to be with us in our encampment, if you will. So, so have your shovel ready, or whatever. Uh, because what has happened before is going to happen again. But it's going to be a much closer relationship here where he will have to defend us. Because there are people who will want to kill us. So, how does a virgin conceive and have a child? Well, Mary conceived and had a physical child. That's not going to happen again. He's already been born. He's already come. He's already done what he was supposed to do here and gone back to his father's throne. Now, it is a spiritual analogy because the church is called the Virgin Bride of Christ. So, what the virgin is to do is to bring forth his character, his likeness, his thought processes, his actions. We're to be just like him and bring forth him in our lives. That's what we're called on to do. And when we have brought him forth and become as much like him as we can possibly be, then he says he's going to come dwell with us and turn his face and shine upon us and bless us again after having spewed us out. So his relationship with us is going to improve. Now he tells us in Jeremiah to seek him with our whole heart and we will find him and he will be found of us. He will be willing to be found. It comes from both sides. We have to be willing to go find him, but we couldn't find him unless he was willing to be found. And he puts a condition on that. If we will obey him and serve him, he will be found of us. That's his positive approach. I want you to find me. Remember when you were kids playing hide and seek? somebody actually wanted to be found, some little one. I'm in the closet! Come find me! I've, I've actually heard that said. Please come find me. They didn't quite get the picture of what was going on, but they wanted to be found. Well, he has that attitude. He wants us to find him. And he will show himself to us when the time comes. So we're supposed to bring that forth, and then we can call him Emmanuel. We may be a little bit ahead of time using it now, in some respects. I don't know that. Uh, we started doing it when we learned about this. But he is with us. I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt he's could be here today. We ask Him to be. We invited Him, did we not? We ask Him to come and be with us and guide and direct everything that's said. And I have found over the last few years, more and more and more, that when I need to think about a sermon or decide what to speak, I start praying and it just comes. It just comes. Sometimes 30 minutes before the service. And you hear a sermon, and you wouldn't know that I didn't have a clue what I was going to talk about 30 minutes ago. Sometimes it's an hour, two, or three, or four, or a day or two. But he said he would give meat in due season, and that he would uh, give us the words we need to speak. So when I prayed about what should be our emphasis right now, with the world coming apart around us, as soon as I address God and asked him, what do we need right now? It just came, just like that. And there was no question in my mind. That was the most important thing for us to address right now. I haven't told you yet, but we'll get there soon. I started here in Matthew 1, because clearly this is an end-time prophecy. It's Jesus until the church at the end brings forth Christ in our character, and then he comes and is with us, and we call him Emmanuel. So I know he's already coming to some degree. I can see it, I can feel it, I can know it. So I don't think we're too premature, but we haven't gotten to the point yet where we need a wall of fire, but it'll be coming soon, because there are thieves and liars among us. There are. And I know it for certain. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Eternal had bidden him, and took his wife, and then called him Jesus. Now, there were wise men from the East, and you know this story, uh, who saw a star, and they followed it to come, uh, because they perceived that This was an important personage that had been born. So they brought gifts and came to see him, Expensive gifts, too. And they came and says, We've seen a star, and where is he that's born king of the Jews? We want to come and give honor and obeisance and give him gifts. Now, Herod the king heard this. Here are these guys looking for the king of the Jews. He heard that, and he was, over the Jews at that time, and got very, very jealous of this idea. <laughs> he didn't want anybody as a competitor. So he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him, it says. So he gathered together all his counselors and demanded them where Christ would be born, and they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, because it's in the prophecies. Uh, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men in verse 7, diligently inquired of them what time the star appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search for it. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Oh, I left out here. These guys that had come from the east were called to Herod. And he questioned them. And then he told them, Well, go find him. And then when you find him, come back and tell me, and I'll go worship him too. There were liars back then as well as today. (laughs) And Herod was one of them, because we know what Herod ultimately did. So, they departed, and then they found Christ. They saw the star, and they rejoiced. They came to the house, and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and worshipped them, and opened their treasures, and so on. And then we have a, a dream again in verse 12. These weren't particularly important men, other than uh, they had been selected to show where the Christ was by following the star. And they may have been important personages in Israel for that matter. We, we don't know exactly who they were. But they had a dream. Not to return to Herod. Herod had said, come back and tell me where he is and I'll go worship him. And then God sent another angel and said, don't you go back to Herod. Uh, They probably would have died as well as Jesus. And not only that, uh, God didn't want Herod to know where he was. So they departed and went a different way. And then the angel appeared to Joseph in another dream, saying... Go to Egypt. Uh, you'll be protected, and then when Herod dies, you can come back. But you're in danger as long as Herod's alive. Well, we know then that Herod sent out and killed all the babies that could have been in the range of when Christ was born uh, so that he could hopefully get him. He didn't mind uh, child murder back then, just like we don't mind child murder, it appears, today. What has changed? So he took him to Egypt, and then when the death of Herod occurred, uh, he brought him back. Now in the meantime, as, let's see, here, there's another dream, down in verse 22 of chapter 2. Uh, let's see. He took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. What When he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee and went to Nazareth because it had been prophesied Christ would be a Nazarene. So he didn't have to go into Herod's son. There could have been trouble there even. So he went away to Nazareth. Now, his cousin, John the Baptist, who was a year, uh, half-year older than him, six months older, uh, had grown up, and Christ himself had been down there for quite some time, apparently, because John the Baptist began preaching in the wilderness of Judah, saying, Repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what Christ began to preach as soon as he started. Same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, is that any more or less important today than it was then? <laughs> For now, the kingdom of heaven is really at hand. Uh, it was at hand then because of Christ, who would be preaching and who will be the ruler of that kingdom, was there. And salvation and an acceptance into that kingdom began to be offered. So it was at hand, Uh right there, if they would accept it. Now, we know that we have the same thing. Uh, John the Baptist was a type from Elijah, and that at the end time, there will be another type of both Elijah and John the Baptist to come and prepare ahead of time for Christ to come. So, he was out preaching that. And he says, this is uh, that which was spoken of by... Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, that's from Isaiah 40 in verse 1 and forward, because Herbert Armstrong ended in chapter 39 of, of uh, Isaiah uh, as a type of Hezekiah. And from Isaiah 40 on is the beginning of the end time work, a preparatory work, as John the Baptist did. So, uh, he was out in the wilderness, just as Isaiah 40 said. And he came in a camel's hair and leathern girdle and ate meat and locusts and wild honey. He was, kind, he was not uh, a polished uh, man about town. Uh, he was a rougher type of a guy, is what John the Baptist was. But they went out to see him. And many were baptized. And he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he warned them and called them a generation of vipers, something Christ would echo not too much longer after this, and told them to repent and not say, we have Abraham to our father. And we lean on that because he says, God could raise these stones up as children of Abraham. Uh, he could do that. So, uh, he said, Christ is going to become, and you'll get baptized with fire, not just with water. So, repent. So, that was his message, is that everybody needed to repent and turn to God. Then, in verse 13, Jesus came and was baptized. Now, I'm doing this for a reason, to show how God established this and where it went from here. Chapter 4, He was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now remember, Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. God had put him in charge of planet Earth way back. And he was when Adam and Eve were put here. And he immediately... Uh, exercised his sovereignty over them, and has ever since with mankind. So, before the kingdom of God could be presented or offered, the God of this world had to be defeated, and someone qualified to take his place as the ruler of this world. Because Christ says we're going to reign on the earth. He'll be the ruler of the earth, he and the Father. And that we will reign under him for a thousand years. So, the present ruler had to be dealt with. He had to be defeated in some way and be able to be taken out. So, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And it says after that he was very hungry. (laughs) I suspect. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God. Now, notice the guile and the slyness here. If you be. Now, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. He had conspired, communicated, if you will, with John the Baptist. He had been told, his cousin... He had been told by his mother and his father that he was the son of God. He knew that as he grew up. Uh, Son, I'm not really your father. I had a dream. (laughs) And you were born. You're the son of God. I'm sure he was very aware of that as he grew up. And John the Baptist was made aware of what his job would be as well at some point. So, Satan approaches it, if you be. So, it's a challenge to see if Jesus will defend his position, if he has some ego or vanity there, whereby he would say, well, I am. He didn't answer that way. He didn't fall for the bait. If you be, uh, command that these stones be made bread. Well, he was very hungry after not having eaten for 40 days. So that was an obvious thing to use. Make this bread if you're the Son of God. You can do it. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3. So he just quoted scripture at him. I don't have to have bread alone. Then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple. said to him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Now, is that a true saying? Yeah. Satan knows scripture a whole lot better than you and I do. He knows every verse and knows it well. And he is very, he can very easily use it to deceive people. We have to be very, very careful that we take God's word in context to be sure we're getting the correct meaning and not interpret it for ourselves. Very dangerous, because Satan knows how to use Scripture on you. And that's a real good one he used on Jesus right there. That's a good one. He said, you won't get hurt, so just go ahead and jump. But he wasn't going to do what Satan said. Even though that Scripture was there, and it's a true Scripture, and God has promised us protection if we will serve and obey him, This was a twist. Even though it's just straight scripture, it's a twist to get him to do something that he should not do. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the eternal your God. He answered him with scripture. So he had to know which scripture applied in which circumstance. So, yeah, God's promised protection, but don't tempt him. Don't be stupid. You ever have your kid sitting up on top bunk and say, jump, I'll catch you. That kid kind of looks at you. Yeah, you, you mean that? You going to catch me or not? Because there might have been some time when you told him and you didn't do it. And you let him go clear to the floor or something. Who knows? But it takes some time there for that kid to trust, yeah, if I jump, Daddy will catch me. Do we believe God? And we have to correctly apply each scripture. People can quote scripture at you, and maybe they're quoting at the wrong time, the wrong place, in the wrong way, and it applies some other time in a different circumstance, but not right now. And we've got to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong and what's the one that applies today. You know, when you're about to do something or somebody tries to get you to do something and they quote you a scripture. you got to think. There's lots of scriptures. Is that the one that applies now or does this one over here apply? Because somebody's trying to make you apply this one to now. People use that one, it's a mistranslation actually, but it just comes to mind, where people say, well, the scripture says avoid all appearance of evil. No, it does not. In the Greek, it says avoid all forms of evil. But people use that on each other all the time. Well, what you're doing appears evil to me, and you're breaking scripture because it appears evil. Is it evil? Is it contrary to God's word? Is it contrary to his law? That's the answer. That's the key. Appearance has nothing to do with it. It's not even in the book. doesn't say it. All forms of evil. But people use that on each other constantly. And it's misapplied because it doesn't even say that. So when someone quotes that one at you, tell them, I don't care what something looks like. What is it really? What is it really? Because something appears evil to somebody does not make it evil. I've used the example of, I think, a time or two. Here's a guy driving down the street. He's been up all night long because he heard his mother was dying. So he stops. He goes into this bar, and he stays in there for a while. And you're sitting over there in your car with a view of the bar. You see him go in, and then you see him, you're waiting for something, I don't know what. But you say an hour later, he comes out. And he's kind of staggering around. And he can't seem to find the right car. And he tries to put the key in this one and it doesn't work. And then he goes on and gets another one. And he finally gets the key to work. And then he finds his way out of the parking lot. Meantime, this girl from inside the bar comes running out and gets in the car with him. And... Together, they turn right and go down the street and make another right, and you're thinking there's a big apartment complex down there. And I'll bet this drunk made a deal with this girl, and they're going to his apartment down the street, and I know what's going on. Now, that is the appearance of evil, right? In your mind. To somebody else, it might not appear evil, but to you, having watched this, that's evil. There's sin. Sin out there. Well, the truth of the matter is, this guy had flown all across the way across the country, had been up all night long, had rented a car, had driven to this bar where his sister worked, and the reason he had flown out all night long was because his mother had cancer and his sister had called him and said, if you want to see mom alive, you need to get here as soon as you can. So he came out of the bar and was half asleep. So he was kind of meandering. Well, he had been told, I guess, no, let's see, let's go back. He'd come in a taxi and got into the bar. He didn't have a car. He didn't rent a car. So he went... She gave him the keys to her car and said, Go get the car and I've got to finish up here and then I'll come out and meet you. So he wasn't sure which was her car. So he tried it on this white car and it didn't work. So he went and he found another white Ford and tried it there and it did work. So then he drives out and she comes out of the bar... And jumps in and they go down and turn right and right again because past the apartment complex is a hospital. And they're going down there to see mom before she dies. So what appeared evil to you sitting in your car was perfectly innocent. You see, the appearance of evil is not necessarily evil. Just because you think it doesn't mean a blasted thing. Because the human mind is capable of all kinds of evil imaginations. And it does it constantly because we're negative and we like to think that somebody else is a sinner. And that they might even be a worse sinner than we are. And chances are they probably are because we can see their sins. I was out here feeding as a single man, feeding some goats, and I had a single woman with me several years ago. We were feeding the goats. And somebody right down here looked out his kitchen window and reported sin in the backyard. Is it a sin to feed goats? Is it a sin to have somebody help you feed goats? If they're a female, does that make it sin? He didn't see any sin. Feeding goats isn't a sin. Doesn't even sound like sin, really. But the fact that I was with somebody, two single people, male and female, it had to have sin in there somewhere. Come on. You gotta know which scripture to apply, and and you might even ought to have it translated properly. <laughs> All forms of evil is what the book says. But you like that interpretation, the appearance of evil, because you can see what appears evil in others and you can make a judgment on them based on what you think you see or what you see but misinterpret or don't have a clue about. We had better be very, very careful. You know what I mean? We're going to see that here maybe in a little bit. Maybe not today, but we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So, Satan quoted Scripture, and it was good Scripture. It wasn't misquoted, wasn't twisted, just used in a wrong way. And Jesus said, now here's the Scripture we need here. Not that one, here's the one we need. Don't tempt the eternal, your God. So, Satan tries a third time in verse 8. He takes him up to an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. I suspect he took them up, probably took him up on uh, uh, Brian's head. It's the highest mountain around the true Jerusalem. And you can see 360 degrees up there and all the kingdoms of the world at that time were in this general area, so he could see around. There's no, there's no mountain like that in the Middle East of that Jerusalem. There's no high mountain around, period, anywhere near, where you could see all that stuff. Anyway, that's a different matter, just a little additional proof. So he could see all the kingdoms, and he said to him, All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, he was the ruler of the earth at that time, and he could give in those kingdoms. He had that within his power. If you'll worship me. Well, that's a loaded thing, because, yeah, I'll give them to you, but you still have to worship me. I'm actually still in charge. You're just second in charge, is what this amounts to. But if... Jesus had vanity or ego. This was stroking it. And he thought, I could rule the whole world. How many men would like to do that? And how many men have tried that in the history of mankind? (laughs) A lot of them. And you think, well, I wouldn't want to do that. But you would like to rule the block. And you'd also like to rule those neighbor's kids. Or dogs or whatever. You know? We all have a desire to control, to manipulate, to cause people to do what we would like them to do, whether it's one on one or the whole world. So your your ambitions may not go beyond your husband or your wife or your kids, but a lot of people's go a lot further than that, and we're watching it happen in our nation right at the moment as people are vying for ultimate power to rule the nation. Don't think for a minute Donald Trump doesn't want to be an authoritarian figure and bypass Congress and the courts. He's shown that many times. And don't think Biden and all those people don't want to turn this into communism and rule the whole nation. Both sides are wrong, dead wrong. There is no one to vote for except Jesus Christ to come and rule the world. He's the only one that can do it right. Satan's doing it right now. And look at the mess we've got. So he showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, All these I'll give you. Then said Jesus to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the eternal your God, and him only shall you serve. There's the right scripture for him to use. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Uh, That is, they brought him food and water, and took care of him, and got him back to normal. And then he heard that John the Baptist was cast into prison, and he left Nazareth and went to Capernaum, and so on. And verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist had gone ahead of him and preached that exact thing. Then he comes along and repeats it. So John the Baptist prepared the way for that. And he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he started calling uh, some men to come follow him so that he could make them fishers of men. And then, you know, he got fishermen and tax collectors and all kinds of normal, everyday, weekend base, average people. These weren't the mighty. He didn't go to the Pharisees and say, Oh, you guys are so educated and you're so smart and you're so godly. I want you to come and follow me and preach my gospel. Not a chance. He just took people like you and me. Just like you and me. is whom he called. Verse 23, He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So he started out calling for repentance, that the kingdom of God is going to be offered, it's at hand, and healing people. And so people began to follow, and multitudes came in verse 25. Now, he did something different at this point. Chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. So he saw all these people who were coming to get healed. And he got away from them. He went up on a mountain to get away. Now when you've seen movies about this, they've had all these thousands of people gathered while he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Nah. He got away from the multitudes. He saw them and he didn't want them there. Now he had not had a problem with them being there up until this point, right? They'd come and he'd healed them and he had preached repent. But now he didn't want them there because he had a purpose and a plan that he was going to institute. And he was not going to give it to the multitudes. It was not going to be offered to the multitudes. When he was set, he found a place, he sat down, his disciples came to him. Not the multitude, just his disciples. And he opened his mouth and taught them. So what he was going to say was for his disciples only. Okay? What we have here, laid out in the next three verses are the conditions, the terms, the rewards of the new covenant. That's what he's doing. He's laying out the new covenant before them. Up until this time, salvation had not been offered to ancient Israel. Just physical blessings if they would physically obey. A very, very select few exceptions occurred with Noah and Moses and Daniel and and those patriarchs named in patriarchs named in Hebrews 11, and perhaps many others, as it says there, but not a lot more. So it had been offered on a very, very limited basis. And here it was offered on a very limited basis. No man can come except the spirit of the Father drawing, John 6:44. So he didn't want the multitudes there. He was only going to start this new covenant with a very, very few people. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he's going to lay out here for us, what is important. Now, the reason we're going here is that we need to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It isn't very far off. It's within a very few short years. And they're going to be very, very tumultuous years. And over well over 90% of the people on this earth are going to be dead by the time it comes. You and I have an opportunity to be in a microcosm of that, protected, taken care of, defended, and to have... Peace, plenty, and prosperity so that we can be God's witnesses that He is God and that this is what He is capable of doing. Now, we talked about building a temple. We talked about things that need to be done. And I didn't even get into the time element. Uh, It's there, and we may eventually get there again. We've talked about it some but it appears this is all going to wind up by 2026 and 27 as the Jubilee. That only leaves us six years, really, till the first resurrection, if that's the case. You know how fast six years can go by? And they're going to be busy years and tumultuous years with dead and dying everywhere in this nation. Over 90% are going to die in this nation. In that amount of time. And the start of it has already begun. We're in these riots or pill- killing innocent people. Just a few. It's probably going to increase after the election. And it'll get worse and worse and worse. And then we're going to be invaded after famine and pestilence kills about a third of us. Then war. More. And then the last third taken captive. And a sword after them. That's going to happen here in the next months. And a couple of years. It's already started. So I'm not telling you something that's a long way away. It's here. It's happening. It's just getting worse day by day by day. They're not backing off now. It's time. So. So. Right now, the most important thing I think we could possibly do is review the New Covenant and the promises given to us and what we need to do to ensure that we receive the blessings that that New Covenant offers. Timing, prophecy, doesn't really matter. Nothing matters except that we be acceptable to God in heaven as candidates for His kingdom. Nothing else matters. You're either going to live eternally or you're not. One of the two. And everything that's going on in your life right now will all be behind you and gone. Is that why Paul said there in Corinthians, if you come into the church and in time, and he thought he was in it, so he, he addressed that issue at a time when it looked like everything was right before him. But it wasn't. Now it is right before us. And he says, whatever state you find yourself in, stay that way. If you're called being single, stay single. If you're called being married, stay married. He even warned about, at some point, not even having kids. Woe to them. The give suck or they're pregnant. When the flight comes, we're so close to these things now. We'd better be heeding all those warnings and be sure we're paying attention in our lives. This isn't theory. Theory's done. This is real. It's happening in the streets in the cities of America this very day. And we are being lied to daily by the mainstream media and by our politicians. Daily lied to. And they're bringing it on us. So he starts laying out the terms and the conditions. And if you pay attention to anything, pay attention to this. As to prophecies, they'll be fulfilled. As to other things, they won't matter. But what really matters is our relationship with the Father and the Son. That's the thing that matters the very, very most. That's why I spend so much time talking about becoming friends with our Father and our brother. Because they offered friendship. And they want people who are faithful and honorable to them to be those friends. That means we can't lie, we can't steal, we can't cheat, we can't commit adultery, we can't fornicate, we can't do any of those things that the law says don't do. And if we do, we are in jeopardy of losing out on eternal life. So nothing is more important than becoming as close to our father and our brother as we can get. And doing exactly what they say. Then he said, I'll call you friends. Now, he is setting these twelve men up as potential friends. Right here, he doesn't offer them friendship. He doesn't offer that until just before he goes back to his Father in Heaven, and he says, You'll be my friends if you'll do what I say. He offered friendship after three and a half years of ministry, his death, his resurrection, and what was to come afterward. That's when he offered it. Right now, here at the very beginning of this, he's just called these guys from fishing and tax collecting and all this stuff, and said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men, not fish. Now he sits down with them, puts the multitude aside, and says, all right, here are the conditions, here are the terms. Here's the covenant I'm offering. Now let's dive into it and look at it, because that's, this is the best synopsis of the new covenant that there is. Right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now Christ boils it down a little more when He says there's just really two commandments. Love the Father with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He says it all boils down to that and on this hangs all the Law and the Prophets. Those two things. So He boils it down to that. But... He needs to explain the details. He needs to explain what he expects under this new covenant that he's offering. And to just make that one statement, worship God and love your neighbor, uh, leaves a lot of room for us to wonder how do we go about that. So here he explains the terms and conditions, the how to go about that. It all boils down to that, but here's the how to do that. So let's see. He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very first statement offers eternal life. That was not offered under the Old Covenant. Here, very first sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that mean we shouldn't have the Holy Spirit? We should be poor in that? We shouldn't have much of it? No, he's talking about the human spirit here. He's talking about the way we normally are. Proud, vain, boastful, egocentric, selfish. That's the spirit that the spirit and man combined with the brain of man and Satan influencing us, is. So, someone who is poor in spirit is someone who recognizes the vast difference between himself and God. And he does not consider himself better than anyone else. He does not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, let me use the example that Christ pointed out in a different place to illustrate this. You had the Pharisee who was lifting his arms to God and he was praying with his face lifted up and his arms lifted up. Oh God, look down upon me because I have given to the widows and I've... Done these great works and I've helped the poor and I've done all these wonderful works. You just can't help but see, oh God, that I should be in your kingdom if anybody should because I've done so well. I pat me on, excuse me a minute, I'll lift the hands out. I gotta pat me on the back a minute here about all these wonderful works I've done. I gotta tell them to you. And, and I have to tell them to my fellow Pharisees, of course. And these ridiculous publicans, they need to know for sure all the good works that I do and have done. Now, Christ makes a comment about that a little later on in this very context that we're in. But here's the Pharisee, full of ego, full of vanity, and certainly not poor in spirit. He has a spirit of ego and self. And there's a publican down there who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and looked down and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, That's the one I'm going to look to. There's the one who recognizes his spiritual poverty. There's one who recognizes that He's nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Here's someone who recognizes his faults, his lacks, his needs. He doesn't brag. He doesn't even try to get other people to think he's better than he is. He just admits, I'm a wretch. I'm just a wretch. And that's the way he goes before God. And God looks down and says, I can work with that attitude. There's somebody that's humble and meek and recognizes his lacks and his faults and his needs. And he's coming to me saying, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And it just melts God's heart because he is merciful. He always is, and it lasts forever. But somebody who's bragging and thinks they're really the biggest pimple on the dog, uh, he doesn't go with that. He doesn't like that at all. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their poverty and go to God constantly asking for more of His spirit. You see, our self-righteousness means nothing to God. God. All our righteousness is as used minstrel claws, is the way it's translated in Isaiah. Not desirable to anything or anybody. Is what we are in all of our righteousness. Now he says in Isaiah 54, their righteousness will be of me once we repent of our Laodiceanism and turn to him and learn true holiness and righteousness. So it's not something that we conjure up in our minds of self-righteousness and patting our own backs and telling people what we have done and how much we serve. Oh, I'm so wonderful. I serve so much. You know what that is? Translated dung, I guess, in the Bible would be a good word to use smells the same whatever you call it because god does not go with that he wants us to truly understand that about as and of ourselves we are worthless and nothing and can do nothing can you resurrect yourself can you change yourself can you jump off the ground and meet jesus in the air no there's not a thing you can do except tell him how much you need him and how much you need his spirit. I'm poverty struck. You know, the, you know what the Pharisee thought? He thought his treasure in heaven was boundless. He thought he had gold and silver laid up in heaven like you wouldn't believe. And is reminding God. Of all that he had given and done and and built up this reward. But he had none. He thought he had a lot and he had none. When you brag about it, when you boast about it, when you pat yourself on the back about it, you lose it all. You pull the wrong handle of the casino and it all went away because of your vanity and your ego and selfishness of what you want and how great you think you are, or would like to think you are. Sometimes we have a sneaking suspicion that it ain't true, but we'd like to believe it. So we try to get others to believe it with us. So the very thing that he starts with is if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven... You need to come to understand your absolute spiritual poverty and how on your own you are worthless and you need me for everything. And once we come to that attitude, we can move on to the next point. So let's stop with that point and think about it this week. Because if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, that's the place to start. Spiritual poverty and humility. It's where you gotta start and go from there.